Let me invite you into worship this morning with these words from the scripture. Come and give thanks to God, constantly remembering his faithfulness. The Lord our God is holy. Praise the name of the Lord. Come before God with abiding faith and steadfast hope. For the Lord our God is holy. Praise the name of the Lord. Come and hear the powerful message of good news in Christ. For the Lord our God is holy. Praise the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, move among us today and awaken us to your loving presence. When we lose our way and put our confidence in our possessions or our wisdom or all that the world has to offer us, call us back to yourself. And remind us that our very identity is dependent on your mercy and your grace. Show us how to walk faithfully with you, following the path of justice and goodness in our daily lives. And may our days be filled with joy and hope as we share with others the good news of abundant life that comes from following our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, from the time that we are born, we begin to receive our identity from other people, from the expectations of friends or colleagues, from the labels that society puts on us, and the influence of our family. To become a Christian is to receive a new identity. And we no longer allow others to tell us who we are. Christ now claims us and instructs us And the Christian is one who, the scripture says, has put on Christ. Today is the first Sunday in a new teaching series from the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're calling it Living in Hope. And I felt strongly God leading me to teach this series near the beginning of another new year because this is a time when many of us take stock of our lives. We reevaluate who we are. We think about how to deal with all the issues in our life. And today's going to give us an opportunity to make a decision about some of the baggage that we carry around in our life. And we'll find out that we're either going to hang on to it and not change, or we give it to God and allow him to change us. Our focus this weekend is also on the sacrament of Holy Communion and how God's grace is extended to us in this simple meal. But I hope that whatever uh, you take away from this service today, you will remember this, um, that our true identity doesn't come from other people. It doesn't come from the world around us. The scripture says that when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, we are identified as sons and daughters of God. Isn't that awesome? God has chosen us to be his people, and he's given us a special mission to use our gifts to strengthen the church, and to transform the world around us. Pray with me. God, you call us to believe in you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that is our prayer today. Help us to not only affirm the truth of your word, but to be fully committed to following it. Help us to not only be committed to living a decent and moral life, but to be people who love God and love others in such a way that the world sits up and takes notice. Help us to not just take pity on other people, but to be willing servants um, to help others. Hear our prayers to you today as uh, to be changed people, people set apart and set on fire for you. Bless our worship and receive all that we give you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.
One of the questions that I've often struggled with as I've worked with all kinds of people and congregations is this. How do we define what a Christian looks like or acts like? What are the characteristics of a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It used to be that if you were not Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist, you were Christian, whether that was Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopal or Baptist. But it seems now that the word means something more specific. There are even some non-denominational churches that consider themselves the real Christians, while those of us in mainline churches like Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopal or Baptist or Methodist maybe not regarded as so. So what exactly is a Christian? When people ask me how to define who a Christian is, it shows me that that person has been doing some serious thinking about spiritual issues. But it also tells me that they've gotten to a core issue that has long confused millions of people. What is the difference between being a Christian and being a church member? How would you answer that question? Before we plunge further into that discussion, let me stop and say that beginning this morning, we're starting this brand new teaching series from the book of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. And if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, you might have trouble finding this book because it's relatively short. The best way to find it is to go to the Gospel of John and turn right. You'll go past Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you hit a series of short letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and when you finally pass Colossians, you come to 1st Thessalonians. But you have to watch carefully because it's a short little book, and if you get to 1st Timothy, you've gone too far. Right after the first of the year, I began reading this delightful little book, and as you will see in the weeks ahead, it got me thinking about the spiritual state of our congregation. We have added a lot of new people to our congregation in the last several years, and some are new believers, and some are like me. They still have a lot to learn about our Christian faith. So before we jump into this letter, it's important to know some facts about 1 Thessalonians. First, this is one of the oldest books in the New Testament. Scholars date it at approximately 50 or 51 AD, meaning that it was written only 18 years after Jesus' life and death. As such, it is one of the earliest pictures we have of the Christian church at its very beginnings. The only books that may be older than 1 Thessalonians are Galatians and James. Secondly, it is one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It contains only 79 verses. You can, you can read it easily in about 30 minutes. Third, it is one of the easiest books to understand. Unlike Romans, there is no complicated theology to ponder. Everything the Apostle Paul writes is simple, it's clear, it's direct. It's not a doctrinal writing that raises many difficult questions. It's a short little book written to a young church. And then fourth, it is one of the most practical books, I think, in the New Testament. In five short chapters, Paul deals with a wide range of truth. Some of the topics include commitment to Christ, integrity, compassion, the Word of God, heavenly rewards, suffering, prayer, moral purity, the second coming of Christ, 
the role of spiritual leaders dealing with difficult people and testing spiritual gifts. Because it is so clear, it's a great book to read and study even for new believers. Now some background that you should know, in Acts chapter 17, the first nine verses, we have the story of the founding of the church in Thessalonica. The city of Thessalonica was part of a seaport, was a seaport town in ancient Greece. Uh, As such, it was an important crossroads for east-west traffic. The port contained a suburb, uh, uh, contained a superb harbor that attracted ships from every part of the Mediterranean Sea. The famous um, Ignatian Way, which was a highway system that connected Rome with Asia to the east, passed through Thessalonica. So it was a strategic center, it was a wealthy city, and whatever happened there would soon be spread throughout the entire empire. Now the population of Thessalonica considered, uh, consisted of four main groups, Greeks, Romans, Jews, and Asians. Most of the people were idol-worshiping pagans. The Apostle Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey and after preaching in the local synagogue for three Sabbaths, whatever that meant, whether it was 15 days or a somewhat longer period of time if preaching was not on consecutive weeks, He was forced to leave town under pressure from the Jews who started to stir up the locals and cause Paul some serious problems. So Paul's brief ministry resulted in a small congregation made up mostly of converted Greeks, along with a few believing Jews and some leading women of the town. It was clearly a a predominantly non-Jewish or Gentile congregation. Now, in order to understand the letter, we need to know one important fact. Paul left Thessalonica before he really wanted to. His premature leaving caused many of the younger believers to wonder about him and his ministry, and some were tempted to even give up their faith under the continuing pressure and persecution. But after leaving Thessalonica, Paul went to Athens, And then from Athens, he sent his younger protege, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing as Paul then moved on to Corinth. Timothy eventually reported back to Paul regarding the state of this young church. And evidently, he told Paul that the church was doing well, but it was under intense pressure to give in. Certain rumors about Paul were being spread because he left town so suddenly. There were also various moral and doctrinal problems surfacing in the church. And although Paul wanted to return, circumstances prevented him from doing so. So he wrote this letter of encouragement to this young church. To me, this letter reveals the heart of Paul, maybe more so than any other letter he wrote in the New Testament. If you want to know what Paul really believed, read the book of Romans. If you want to know what he was like as a person, Read 1 Thessalonians. So the letter begins this way. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work your loving deeds, 
and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how encouraging these opening words must have been to that young congregation made up of mostly of new believers. Everything Paul writes to them is meant to lift their spirits. They were a fledgling church. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They had experienced the grace and the peace of God. And he prayed for them and he thanked God for them. Now think about the Christian graces that he mentions here. And I love this part. Paul says, the work that comes from faith has been noticed. The labor motivated by love, their love has has been noticed. And the endurance that flowed from their hope. The work that comes from faith, the labor motivated by their love, and the endurance that flowed from their hope. This trio of statements helps us to comprehend the whole scope of the Christian life, which begins in faith and continues in love and culminates in the hope of eternal life. Now, if the Thessalonians wondered how Paul felt about them, and if they were tempted to doubt the work of God among them, they need to only read and reread these opening verses. God had, uh, had been powerfully at work in these few brief weeks of Paul's ministry and teaching. So with that as an introduction, the next few weeks deal with the subject of their conversion to the Christian faith. Step by step, Paul recounts how these former pagan pagans became fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. In one of his books, Lloyd Ogilvy uh, says, the great need today is for the conversion of religious people who, though they believe in God, are headed away from him and not toward him. He goes on to say that authentic conversion always comes in response to God's call and always results in a radical reorientation of our whole life. It changes our direction, and that change stands the test of time. That's what happened to the Thessalonians. As we look at the verses in this first chapter today, I'm going to challenge you to consider whether or not you have truly made a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ. And that brings me back to the original question. How is a Christian defined? How can you tell the difference between a Christian, a Christ follower, and just any other church member? Like any good teacher, the Apostle Paul starts at the very beginning and he answers the question, what must happen first? And he says that in order for a person to be converted, two things have to happen first. Something from God's side, and something from the human side. And God's side must always come first. Verse four, we know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. What must happen first is that God must choose us, which he has already demonstrated in sending his son into the world and inviting us to have a personal relationship with him. Salvation begins with God's choice of us, not with our choosing God. The Bible teaches that God's desire for us to know him flows from his love for us, and that's why Paul calls these new believers brothers and sisters whom God has chosen to be his own people. Salvation is a work of God, 
not us. And conversion begins with the work of God that draws us to God. Look at verse 5. But when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern uh, for you from the way we lived when we were with you. Now, so that we don't become unbalanced, Paul immediately talks about the human side of conversion. God's part, his reaching out to the Thessalonians was through the preaching of the gospel. The word was preached with uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit, producing deep conviction in the hearts of those who heard it. And when he says not only with words, he means that it didn't simply rattle off, he didn't simply rattle off some stale message. He didn't rely on clever rhetoric to convince them. It's true that two people can hear the same message and react in different ways. Um, It happens because one person hears the words, another person hears the message behind the words. But our faith teaches us that it is the Holy Spirit who takes human words in preaching and makes them come alive in the human heart. God promises that his word will never return void. It always accomplishes his purpose. But we never know in advance who may be touched by the message when God's word is proclaimed. The preaching of the word of God must always be accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. For without that power, even the best preaching is useless to change the human heart. So Paul then moves to the evidence of conversion. In these verses, he answers the question, what should we be looking for? There are three answers to that question, and they all revolve around how we respond to the word of God. Look at verse 6. So you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. Now, notice the little phrase here, in spite of the severe suffering. Paul is saying you've been pressed to the limit. You've been under the thumb of others. You've been feeling this pressure and put down. But in spite of all that, you've opened your hearts to the good news. The Thessalonians were so glad to be saved that they couldn't be stopped, even from the persecution they were going through. Now, we see this often in other parts of our world, even today, where being a Christian really costs you something. In countries where persecution is real, there is a deeper joy than we often see in the American church. Here, we tend to take our blessings for granted. In many other places in the world, every day is a gift from God. Every Sunday is an oasis in the desert of suffering. You see, Jesus never invites us to receive him on a trial basis, although some of us try to do that. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Jesus calls a person, he bids him come and die. True conversion means that we continue to follow Jesus Christ even when the going gets rough. Look at verse 7. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. Thessalonica was the capital city of the province of Macedonia. So anything that happened there would eventually be spread throughout the whole region. The word example literally refers to the fact that the best way to win others to the faith is the example of our own life, our own changed life. Remember what Jesus said to the man who wanted to accompany Jesus on all of his travels? Jesus said, no, go home 
to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. See, we all know that a satisfied customer is the best advertisement for any product. The best place for us to make an impact for Christ is right where we are. We can start by living for Christ and showing others the difference that he makes in our life on a daily basis. Verse 8, and now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For whatever we, wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. There's a wonderful word picture in this verse. When Paul says the message rang out, it is a term from the orchestra. It means to strike the symbol as the Thessalonians shared Christ, the message uh, reverberated throughout their entire region. The evidence of Christ in our life is that first, we receive God's word gladly, and then we live it out on a daily basis. And as we do that, the message of the gospel begins to reverberate in every direction, and those around us begin to sit up and take notice that there's something different about our life. Now our passage contains one final truth regarding conversion. It's in verses nine and 10. And it answers the all important question, how does all of this happen? This is where truth must become personal for you and me. These two verses describe the past, the present, and the future of those who have given their life over to the Lordship of Christ. Look at verse 9. We don't need to tell, you, tell them about it, for, the, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now, in the case of the Thessalonians, this was literally true. They had been idol worshipers before coming to Christ, and suddenly their life was dramatically changed, utterly transformed. But how did that happen? It happened because they turned to God. That is what conversion means. That's what it's all about. The Bible says, it, uh, it sometimes uses the term repentance, which means the act of turning to God. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words for repentance. The first word means to turn around or change your mind. The second is a word used over 600 times in the Old Testament, and it's translated as turn or return or seek or restore. See, it's very important because we see it often in phrases like to turn to the Lord with all your heart. Now, we come to the New Testament, there is one word we need to know. It's the Greek word metanoia. Meta means to change our mind. Repentance fundamentally seems to change our mind about something. It has to do with the way we think about things. We've been thinking one way, and now we think the opposite way. That's what repentance is. It's the changing, not only of our heart, but of our mind. Repentance is a change in the way we think that leads to a change in the way we live. When we really change our mind about something, it's going to change the way we think about it, talk about it, feel about it, act about it. See, repentance is a decisive change in a new direction. It's a change of mind, which leads to a change of thinking, which leads to a change of attitude, which leads to a change of feeling, which leads to a change of values, which leads to a change in the way we lead our life daily. Conversion fundamentally involves a change of God's. 
Where once we served sin or self, now we serve the living and true God. Where once we bowed down to the idols of pleasure and power and material gain and worldly approval, now we bow our knee to Jesus Christ. Where once we served the dead gods of this world, now we begin serving the living God. And once we followed falsehood, and now we serve truth, the true God. This in so many ways sums up the whole truth about the Christian life. We are put on this planet to serve God, day by day and moment by moment. We are his servants. We're put here to do what he has for us to do, to act on his behalf, always seeking his best interest, hoping to please him. We serve, we all serve somebody, don't we? No one is truly a free moral agent. We either serve ourselves or we serve God. And then finally, look at verse 10. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. So here's the future tense of the Christian life. We turn, we serve, and we wait. We wait for Jesus to return. This tells us that the second coming of Christ is not some obscure doctrine in which we believe or don't believe, depending on our preference. It is the fundamental motivation for our entire Christian life. Conversion begins when we turn to God. It's an intentional turning of ourself to God. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by auto or automatically, nor can anyone else turn for us. We must decide for ourselves whether or not we will turn to God. Conversion also means turning from the idols of this world to serve the true and living God. We can, we can have our idols, what the world values, or we can have God, but we can't have both. To the Thessalonians, this was literally true since Greek religion was filled with idols of various kinds, all the heroic gods who supposedly dwelt on Mount Olympus were nothing more than detestable idols. The religion built upon these idols was degrading, it was obscene, it was perverse, it generated fear and vengeance and immorality and demonism and even slavery. And idolatry was the foundation of government, of religion, of amusements, of social clubs, of everyday labor. It permeated every aspect of that society. For a Christian to reject all of that and follow Jesus Christ meant rejecting the very foundation of society itself. And yet that is what Jesus calls us to do, and that's what the Thessalonians had done. It's important to remember that not all idols are made of wood or stone or metal. We all have our idols today, only they're just more sophisticated, that's all. An idol is anything in the world which we look to as an ultimate source of value. It could be a job, it could be a house, it could be a car, a title, a position, a possession, a prized relationship. Any of those things can become idols when we look to them for our sense of worth and value. Remember, the sin is not in the wood or metal or stone. Those things are morally neutral. The meaning or the value we attach to things is when it becomes uh, sinful. In that sense, anything good can easily become an idol. Let me summarize in just a few concise statements what this passage today is saying to us. Conversion 
is an act of God that begins with his choice of us. That choice is made real in our life by the proclamation of the gospel. Conversion ushers in a radically changed life, which is built on receiving and living and speaking the truth of God. Conversion means a revolutionary turning in our life from every idol to the true and living God. And then conversion leads to a life of service to God and patiently waiting for Jesus to return. And conversion changes the direction of our life. You see, either we fully commit our life to Jesus Christ or we don't. We have turned in a new direction or we haven't. How can you be converted? The answer is simple. We must trust, we must transfer our trust away from ourselves and place it fully on Jesus Christ. The Christian life begins with conversion. And without conversion, there is no Christian life. So let me ask you, have you been converted? If the answer is no, or if you're not sure with all that is in me this morning, I urge you to turn to God today and say, Lord Jesus, I just want to transfer my trust to you as my Lord and Savior. And I, will, and I pray that you will do that today. Some may say, I really don't know what to say. I don't know what kind of prayer to even pray. I'm going to close with a prayer, and if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to make it personal, and you can join your hearts and your minds with this prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for too long I've kept you out of my life. I know that I'm a sinner and I, that I cannot save myself. No longer will I close the door when I hear you knocking. By faith, I will gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I am ready to trust you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth. I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true. So come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior this day. Amen.